0: I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 19th, 2022.
0: Coming up, with Earth Day approaching, we'll discuss the latest inter- intergovernmental report on climate change and the impacts of government action and lack thereof to reduce carbon emissions.
1: And it's not all doom and gloom. In fact, we'll explore the effects of comedy in better understanding and communicating climate change. Our guests are Professors Max Boykoff and Beth Osnes of CU Boulder and CU undergrad student Enrique Sanibale. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science.
0: An international team of astronomers has announced the measurement of the largest comet ever seen. The comet, named Bernardinelli-Bernstein, is about 80 miles across. Its mass is estimated to be 500 trillion tons. They also determined that the comet is very dark, blacker than coal, reflecting perhaps less than 4% of the sunlight that falls on it. When astronomers report the size of a comet, they are talking about the size of the comet's nucleus, which is a mixture of rock and ice, often described as a dirty snowball. The nucleus is much smaller than the coma, which is the glowing gas and dust being blown off the nucleus as the comet's ices evaporate and create the iconic tail of a comet. To estimate the size of this hidden nucleus, astronomers use data from the Hubble Space Telescope and a radio telescope in Chile. This comet won't come out, anywhere near Earth. It currently is 2 billion miles away and will never get closer than 1 billion miles, which is slightly farther than the distance to the planet Saturn. This distant comet comes from the Oort Cloud, a reservoir of ancient comets far beyond the edge of the solar system and thought to be the source of what are called long-period comets. The Oort cloud extends out to more than 2,000 times the distance to Pluto, and the comet has been falling towards the Sun for well over one million years. Long-period comets like this one are considered to be some of the most pristine leftovers from the formation of the solar system, living most of their lives in cold storage in the Oort cloud. When they sometimes come into the inner solar system, These comets give astronomers a glimpse of the chemical building blocks that formed the solar system four and a half billion years ago. These results were published last week in the Astrophysical Journal Letters. The element phosphorus is vital to life on Earth. It's part of DNA cells and bones. Modern agriculture relies on it to fertilize crops and it's a dwindling resource. KGNU's Benita Lee has more.
2: Phosphorus is mined from limited reserves in the Earth's crust in the form of phosphate rock. Because phosphorus is an element, you can't create it or destroy it, but you can lose it. Phosphorus used for agriculture runs off into rivers, After that, it ends up in the bottom of the ocean where it just sits. In a recent review, scientists at Northern Arizona University said in the past, marine animals such as whales, seabirds, fish, and bears brought phosphorus back onto land. Their bodies, dung, and urine served as nutrient highways. But extinctions, population die-offs, and man-made obstacles such as dams reduced phosphorus migration by 90% over the past 12,000 years. This slow but steady shift led to the current phosphorus crisis. The review authors proposed a solution they call Revitalize the Natural Phosphorus Pump. That means restoring habitat connections among animal communities and taking a cue from carbon trading systems. The scientists suggested that industrialized nations could buy and sell the right to use mined phosphorus while seeking other sustainable phosphorus sources, such as bird guano. Their hope is that businesses or entire countries investing in biodiversity projects will help rebalance the land-ocean phosphorus cycle. This review was published this month in the journal Science of the Total Environment. For How on Earth, I'm Benita Lee.
0: You are listening to KGNU's science show, How on Earth. I'm Joel Parker.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. So as Earth Day approaches, we're taking stock to explore the scientific findings on climate change, including what progress, and lack thereof, governments, as well as companies, are making and turning their pledges to reduce carbon emissions into real action.
0: We'll also explore what kinds of actions individuals can take, and are taking, to communicate about and take action to protect our threatened planet, including us humans. It's at once tragic and comic, or at least comedy worthy.
1: On that front, today we have three guests, each approaching the critical questions in a distinct way. In the studio with us, we have Max Boykoff. He's a professor in and currently chair of the Environmental Studies Department at the University of Colorado Boulder. And he's a contributing author of the latest scientific report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that was released earlier this month. Welcome to the show, Max.
3: Thanks, Susan. Thanks, Joel. I'm a fan. I appreciate you bringing us in.
0: And also in the studio, we have, we have Enrique Sanibale. He's a third-year student at CU Boulder, focusing on environmental studies and business, and recently, comedy. Welcome to KGNU, Enrique. Thank you for having me. I appreciate
4: it.
1: And joining us via phone is Beth Osnes. She's a professor of theater and environmental studies at CU Boulder, and she's co-director of Inside the Greenhouse. It's a multidisciplinary project at the university for creative climate communication. Thanks so much for joining us, Beth.
5: Thanks for having me.
1: So let's dive in. I want to start with you, Max Boykoff, and the many hats you're wearing. (laughs) In this case, you were one of the contributing authors of this massive, what, 2,900-something recent report. And it comes, I want you to give us a little bit more context. This recent report is kind of a subset of larger ones that have been coming at us for many years. What's the point of them and what are they?
3: Sure. We could talk for hours about this, but (laughs) I'm going to keep it short. Um, So this is the sixth major report that's come from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the first report came out in 1990. They come out every six or seven years as uh, we gain a greater understanding on various aspects of our changing climate. And so the reports are broken up into four parts essentially. There's the first one on physical natural sciences, the second one on impacts and adaptation, and then I was a part of the third one which is on mitigation and policy action. There's gonna be a fourth that's coming out in September that synthesizes these together, so be on the lookout for that. But I was involved in the third report.
1: And given that these reports have had these subsections, these different categories, what's your sense now being so immersed in it? I mean, are we still pants on fire? We've got a few years before we've got irreversible climate catastrophe, or is there something, well, whether it's hopeful or not, but there's something in particular that stands out about this report?
3: Well, when we wrote up this report, it was it's really bold. Um, we know much more now than we did in 2013, 2014 when the last report came out. We're in the middle of a clean energy revolution, for instance. And so when we're talking about mitigation and policy action, we're in a very different place than we were with the last report. Nonetheless, annual average greenhouse gas emissions over the last 10 years, we know it is the highest in human history. We're not on track to limit warming to the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature. Uh, Promise from Paris. And so without uh, rapid and deep emissions cuts across all sectors, it is out of reach. And so what we have determined through the report is that the flow of finance must increase 300 to 600% more to scale to the action that's needed, calling on private investment. We also have, have really pointed out that politics and status quo interests, along with the funding, not science, not technology, those are now the primary barriers to meeting these climate targets.
1: Yeah, and since you're not only immersed in, in this report, but also in the field of science communication, even though the United States, I know we should catch up to the rest of the world and use Celsius, we don't. So <laughs> yeah. it seems to me so, that we should be translating that to Fahrenheit. So say sure. that again, like what? what is really the target? Yeah, I appreciate that
3: talking about sort of in the global community the global community talks in celsius uh but yeah it's been pointed out that that doesn't translate very well Hmm. so it's just under three degrees and so not to get too specific but if you uh yeah it's nine fifths in celsius to get to fahrenheit
0: and and and, and so that's the that's the current target right is the target a moving target if we keep missing it
3: absolutely i mean there is no yeah there, this has really been something that came about through political will and public pressure. In fact, I've actually done some research that when you go in, when you move from emissions themselves into c- concentrations of greenhouse gas, gases in the atmosphere to these temperature targets, you are losing some of the uh, you know the the um, precision when you're talking about these. So these are really just targets that help us get our heads around what is really needed. And that is deep decarbonization and movement from these high-polluting behaviors as a society through through a just transition into these green economies.
0: And if we miss making the cuts we need to make now and things continue to progress, does it just get that much worse linearly or exponentially to try to cut back before we hit the final tipping point where no matter how much we cut back, it's not going to matter?
3: I'm going to say no. I mean, I think there's a lot of uncertainty that as you start to go out in time, there's a lot of uncertainty about our human behavior. Uh, There's a lot of uh, unknowns out there. And so there isn't this just path that you can start to plan for what you want, where you want to live and what kind of climate you want to live in in 2100. You want to move north. No, it's not like that at all. There are low probability, high consequence events that can disrupt the climate and the environments in which we live all the time. But I don't want to be so doom and gloom here. <laughs> right? I, I think some of the good news is that every minute, every hour, every day, every month of our lives, we can be part of this change. And even though individual emissions reductions just uh, you know, have modest impacts, while we ought to be looking at the big polluters, we still can be a part of this change and that's that's really what inspires me to be working with beth working with enrique and others to be a part of that movement for change
1: yeah and i want to ask you a bit what was it like and how were you drawn into being part of this you know there are hundreds of yeah, pulling, lead authors and contributing authors.
0: pulling back the curtain the meta question how do you become a contributing author yeah. and who are these people
3: yeah so i was invited in there's a set of uh, sort of primary contributing lead authors and lead authors And we contributing authors get pulled in when there's expertise that they want to bring in that's not captured with that core. And so I was brought in to talk about how media coverage and media representations influence people's perceptions, their beliefs, their behaviors um, around climate change. And then that also led me into talking about what are some of the barriers to policy action. And so I talked about or I wrote about uh, dimensions of resistance and vested interests from carbon-based industry along with with a coordinated effort that has been documented in the social sciences now for some time around contrarian counter movements. That's to say these are groups that are funded by carbon-based industry oftentimes that then seek to delay or distract from concerted and significant policy action on mean climate like change
1: industry associations companies themselves
3: correct yep and so that's new in the report i was brought in i think there were some visionary lead authors that um, that wanted that new material in there because the social sciences uh, understanding through the peer-reviewed literature has matured to a point where it needs to be in there to tell the full story and so you know we scoured as a collective the whole enterprise, 18,000 peer-reviewed sources so that everything that's in there is heavily, heavily researched and sourced.
1: Interesting. And was it the first time in this report, and seems like perhaps thanks to your <laughs> contributions that the role of comedy and research about comedy in theater in communicating climate change actually worked its way in, at least to the full report,
3: right? Yeah. Yep. In the technical summary and in the full report, I uh, added in some language because the creative aspect of climate communications is tremendously important. And so I'm really glad to say it's not just us that are doing this work in Colorado, but also there's many people working on this in a variety of ways at other universities and in other settings. And so I was glad to uh, be able to get that into the report.
1: Yeah, and I know you and Beth Osnes, who we're bringing back on the line now, have done research together. So I want to segue to you, Beth. Thanks so much for joining us again via phone. Beth Osnes we have. What is your sense, given your role and your interest, of how comedy, how theater in general, but can be another creative communication tool? And for whom? You know, there's one to be preaching to the converted and laughing together in satire, and another to be actually trying to speak across the
5: aisle. Great. Um, well, you know, I come from the world of theater, and I'm really interested in looking at theater that's used for positive social change. And what we find is that when we start looking at what makes for excellent art, excellent performance in these realms, there are a lot of things like stickiness and community building that become aesthetic principles. Things what do you mean, stickiness? Are... Well,
1: is stickiness in what sense?
5: It's thinking it's in the sense of the content that we're delivering how much is it actually staying with people how much are they keeping these um Got it. these lessons or this information or the the feelings that are conveyed by that piece
1: and say more about sort of what what you're finding and then what you're doing there on
5: campus to that end great so i think i think also one of the things that we're finding is that There's the conveyance of information and there's the, you know, call to action. But then there's also like, how are people just managing the emotions around engagement with the issue of climate change? For our young people that we work with, they can experience a lot of negative emotions, fear, gloom, shame, um, despair. And they're really not going to be capable of being that next generation to take on this huge issue if they can't manage those emotions, you know, this is a really a generation that's dealing with a lot of anxiety and depression. So really helping people manage those emotions through access to expression. We like to talk about good-natured comedy, comedy that's good for the environment and kind in intent. And we find that having our students engage in this helps them process negative emotions and feel positive emotions, which really sustains their hope and helps them stay engaged.
0: And, and conveniently, we happen to have a student here in the studio, Enrique. So you're a student in, I believe, environmental studies and business. Is that correct?
4: Yep. Yep. Third year.
0: So, so what are you doing with comedy? Uh, <laughs> like uh, the recent performances?
4: Yeah. So, before I joined Beth's Beth's class, I never really made the correlation that you can use comedy as a medium for communication on climate. So I, I ended up joining the class and Beth was truly inspiring in finding these new ways to communicate these problems. So recently there's been a couple projects that we've been working on, but the most recent one happened last week. We actually had a climate comedy show And I'm glad to say that it was a great success. We absolutely packed out Old Main at NCU. But essentially, we had some stand-up performances and we had some skits which talked about some of the solutions that individuals can take to help fight some of these problems. So we had skits talking about vegetarian diets. We had skits talking about fertilizers and so on, so on. So it was really exciting to be part of this climate comedy show and finding new ways to how to communicate this kind of issues.
0: So from your experience, or maybe talking to people after this show who saw it, how do you feel that communication went? Did they feel it was too flippant, too much gallows humor, or did it make a connection?
4: I think it worked perfectly. I mean, Beth, like I said, made that connection between comedy and climate, and people really understood that. Uh, we had laughs the whole time. So not only did they enjoy the show, but I think they walked out with some new information and some new knowledge on some of these issues. So in that terms, I think it was super effective. It,
0: it's nice to get laughs when you intend it, when you're talking about climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't want it when you're giving a serious presentation. Yeah. Although yeah. maybe you do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Max and Beth, what do you think about interjecting comedy into a... Real presentation at a professional scientific conference.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, if we're talking about meeting people where they are, if we're talking about getting Enrique and others who are going to be our capable leaders going forward, involved and interested, engaged, we need to be thinking creatively. And so comedy into these spaces to the set, to the way in which it can open up conversations and the way that it can help us get over what can be seen as polarized spaces, I think can be really successful. What do you think, Beth?
5: I think that oftentimes when we laugh together, you know, laughter at its heart is an involuntary response to some stimuli, and usually it's a stimuli to a loosening in our rigidity. You know, usually it's like when we acknowledge a double meaning in something, and then we all kind of recognize a human foible, or we all collectively um, agree on something that we laugh together, and that's that's a communal pretty special thing when we involuntarily all join in together in a audible response that's involuntary and it rattles the body and it's it's just like a measure of well-being you know like after you've had a tragedy in your life if you can laugh again it's a measure of well-being that you're coping that you're managing it that you've got enough lightness around to to carry on and in these dark times of like really trying to manage this enormous issue that is looming over, our ability to laugh together is a measure of our wellness to persevere and to implement solutions.
1: So important. A little break here. You're listening to KGNU in Boulder, Denver, Fort Collins, and Nederland. For those joining us late, we're talking with three guests about the latest findings on climate change from the IPCC report, and how comedy, theater, but particularly comedy, can be an effective tool in communicating climate change and dealing with emotions. We have Max Boykoff. Beth Osnes, both professors at CU Boulder, and undergrad student Enrique Sanibale. So, Enrique, I want to go back to you. And unfortunately, this is not video, for better or for worse, so we can't (laughs) actually see a snippet. And for those listening, we will link to YouTube. I think the performance from last Friday is going to go live on Wednesday, or live on YouTube anyway. So we'll post that. But, Enrique, if you can give us – like bring us to a little moment in time. What was – Something you did or created, a response you got, something during the night last Friday that excited you and you're like, aha, this is, this is working.
4: Yeah, so I think the most exciting part was when people laughed at my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was good that I got good reception personally, and the reception was there for everyone. But um, I particularly talked about afforestation, which is not a subject too many people know about. So, I did have some of my buddies who were there at the show. They came up and they wanted me just to clarify a bit more and like understand essentially what it is. So,
1: as in tree planting. Exactly. A forestation.
4: A exa- forestation. Essentially, just taking plants or fast growing trees to suck up carbon. So, I talked about that. It was great to have that amazing reception. And it was also great to realize that people really understood. Not only my jokes, but what I was trying to portray from it.
1: Yeah, so we just have a minute left. I want to give each of you a chance. Max, starting with you, is some particular takeaway, particularly on the science education front, perhaps, and what we can all learn from this.
3: Yeah, well, this is experimentation. Um, And it's been wonderful to partner with Beth, wonderful to encounter and work with students like Enrique. But this is work in progress. And uh, I really think this is where a lot of the action is in terms of overcoming uh, you know, some of the polarization, some of the divides politically. This mm-hmm. is a pathway to creatively engage younger uh, people as well. And so it's something that Beth and I continue to work on together as part of our larger uh, group inside the greenhouse.
1: And Beth, Osnes, how about you?
3: Well, I'd just like to, first of all, shout out and thanks to the Argosy Foundation for funding
5: this big experiment we got to do and I just feel like we have these truths that we need to take on as a society but throughout time we have wrapped these truths in stories and really comedy is wrapping a a truth in a story that gives you delight and I just think that Mm -hmm. if we take these truths that we get from the IPCC report and just like wrap them up in irresistibly (laughs) funny and delightful stories that they will land, they will stick, they will resonate, and they will be acted upon.
1: That's great. And Enrique, Sunnybellé, are you going to go into comedy now?
4: <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, after all those laughs, you know, I might have to consider it. But, yeah, I, I am also looking towards Max's side. I want to do some research and actually finding contributions that I could share with others. So, yeah.
1: Thank you. Our guests have been Max Boykoff, a professor in and currently chair of the Environmental Studies Department at CU Boulder, and he's contributing author of the latest scientific assessment by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
0: And? We have Beth Osnes, a professor at the theater environmental studies at CU Boulder, and Enrique Sanibale, a CU undergrad focusing on environmental studies and business. You can find out more about comedy and other performances related to climate and environment by going to www.insidethegreenhouse.net. And we'll post links along with the show on our website at howonearthradio.org. Thank you very much, Max Baikoff.
4: Thank you.
1: And thanks so much, Beth Osnes. Thanks so much for having us. And student here, Enrique Sanibale. Thank you.
4: I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you, KGNU.
0: all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is yours truly, Joel Parker.
1: This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions from Benita Lee.
0: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and the song Between a Laugh and a Tear was by John Mellencamp.
1: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
0: Questions or comments, call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.